How are you doing? Enjoying the sauna out there? Yeah. I don't, I don't have any other jokes about the weather in my arsenal. Not that you'd want to hear them anyway. But it is cold outside. Angie and I were just talking yesterday, like, just reminiscing, like, did it ever get this cold in Cincinnati? I'm pretty sure it did. But when you factor in the negative temperatures and the wind, which I think may even be like lake effect wind, I don't know if you can get that here, but like it is. I need to go to the beach. Anyway, but no. uh, Hey, I'm Tim. If I don't know you and you don't know me, thank you for braving the the cold and, and worshiping with us today. We are continuing on in our journey through 1 Peter that we're calling Set Apart this morning or this, uh, this whole month, and uh, we're going to carry on into, um, into the letter of First Peter. Uh, and I wanted to start off this morning, um, as, as, as any uh, sermon or speech or anything would be good to start off with, uh, a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He said in his famous, uh, I have a dream speech, he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And I, I was thinking about that quote this week as I was digging in and trying to discern through study and prayer what to say about the passage we're going to look at, which is going to be 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. And, and, and the reason that, that quote came to me and just stuck with me. You know, I I can remember being a kid and watching that speech when I was in elementary school and even reading it over the years. And that that statement always stuck out because of the idea that the reality is, is that we're we're all summing each other up in life and we're being summed up by other people. And and oftentimes we are, are too good at summing up and othering other people based off of criteria that shouldn't count as much as character does. And that becomes an issue for the early church as well. In fact, it's the main issue that Peter's dealing with when he writes to the community in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that he's writing to of Christians that are experiencing uh, persecution uh, from the surrounding Gentile world that they're living in. And, you know, I'm, I'm sad to report, I don't know if you look around in life, but things haven't changed a whole lot. We as people and as a world are good at tearing down others for a whole host of reasons. And probably, if we're honest, we've been torn down for a host of reasons ourselves, too. Maybe not to the degree that the early Christians were dealing with, that Peter's writing to, maybe not to the degree that other Christians are dealing with around the world in some places where it's illegal to have the Christian faith and to stick to it. But I, I was thinking about this, and then, and yes, I'm, I'm going to get nonsensical here for a moment, because I was thinking about this issue, and I started thinking about how Part of the problem is, is that the modern-day expression of this is what I like to call the, the sportsification of looking at other people. And you're probably like, what? 
Yeah, I made that up, which is why it's not very good. The sportsification. And I'll give you an example. It's playoff time. I don't know if any of you, I already heard people uh, talking about the, the game being on Peacock. I know someone, I think it was Rich. Anyway, uh, was, uh, boycotted because they don't want to do the streaming thing, which I get, it's kind of ridiculous. But anyway, that's beside the point. If you watched any playoff football yesterday, maybe you had rooting interest in some of the teams that were playing. Anybody watch any of it at all? No? I guess no one cares. Well, I watched some of it, and I'll tell you that I thoroughly enjoyed the shellacking that the Houston Texans gave to the Cleveland Browns yesterday. (laughs) I was grinning ear to ear. I hope the Buffalo Bills do the same thing to the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I hope whoever plays the Baltimore Ravens does the same thing to them. Yes, those three teams are in the division with my beloved Bengals, and I want all of them to lose thoroughly. There's a, there's a guy named Joe Goodberry that is a, 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 a sports writer. He digs into the Bengals. And recently online, he concluded that Lamar Jackson should be the league MVP and touted how great Lamar Jackson is. Remember, this is a Bengals guy talking about the quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens, a team I just said I want to get ousted from the playoffs. A bunch of Bengals people got really mad at him for saying something good about Lamar Jackson, and a bunch of Ravens fans started saying things like, hey, you finally had a good take on sports. (laughs) Exactly. What I've just described is what I mean by sportsification. The idea that I've got my team and everyone else it's a rival. Now that's okay to do in sports, sort of, although we kind of take it too far if we're being honest. But sports, it's, it's as the radio guy in Cincinnati, Lance McAllister, always says, it's the toy department of life. It's fun and it doesn't really matter that much. But the problem, though, is, is that with sportsification and other avenues of life, it becomes problematic. Like, take off the colors of your, your favorite team for a moment and put on a shirt with your preferred political party and do the same thing that we do with sports. Oh, wait, you don't need to because we already do it. I don't know if you guys know, we're in a general election here. I know, I said it. I know, you made it through a couple weeks without having to be reminded of it. But this is what we do as people. If you're a fan of the R's and I'm a fan of the D's or vice versa, we act the same way that I do wanting to oust the arrival teams. We do it with religion. And much like Martin Luther King Jr. says in his quote, we do it with skin color. We are used to treating other people as others and justifying it by means of sportsification. I've got my team and you're on yours. We don't see eye to eye, so you're the other team. And I want you to lose and I want me to win. 
Now, that's fine if you're on the winning team, I guess. But what happens if you're an early Christian in Asia Minor? You've come to a faith that people around you are looking at with peculiar lenses. Wondering if you're weird. Wondering why you're different. Wondering if you have too high a moral standard. Wondering if you're bordering on atheists because in this world that the early Christians were in, there are many gods to worship and all should be. And yet these pesky Christians, they say there's one and we'll worship him alone. It's problematic. They're on the other team. They don't fit in. Let's do something about that. Do you know what happens when you become othered like that? Well, if you're in our world, you rally together and you turn the people that are othering you into the other team and you do the same thing back. How's that working for us? The answer is not good. Believe it or not, Peter has something to say about that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-10. through 10. In fact, he deals with it right up front at the first verse that we're going to look at. And after he deals with the problem, he begins the rest of the letter, which will be a solution to the problem. And it turns out that sportsifying every avenue of life is not the solution he gives. He looks and thinks about the church, the Christians, the disciples of Jesus that he's writing to. And he acknowledges early on that you are like aliens, foreigners in a foreign land. That you're dealing with people persecuting and oppressing you because of your faith. And he says, this is how I want you to respond. And I want you to follow along with me because this is what he says starting in verse 1. Therefore, I'm going to pause right there. I know we didn't get very far. I have fun doing this. That therefore is really, really important because it, it implies or is predicated on, or is built on the foundation of what just came before it. And what just came before it in 1 Peter is Peter exalting who Jesus is, who God the Father is, and who the Holy Spirit is. The one and three, the three and one, the Trinity, the Godhead. And based off of that, he says, therefore, based off of what you believe and what you have chosen to enter into as a believer in Jesus, therefore, get rid of all ill will and all deceit, pretense, envy, and slander. Instead, like a newborn baby, desire the pure milk of the word, nourished by it. You will grow into salvation since you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now you are coming to him as to a living stone, 
Even though this stone was rejected by humans, from God's perspective, it is chosen, valuable. You yourselves are being built like living stones into a spiritual temple. You are being made into a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Thus it is written in Scripture, Look, I am laying a cornerstone in Zion, chosen, valuable. The person who believes in Him will never be shamed. So God honors you who believe. For those who refuse to believe, though, the stone the builders tossed aside has become the capstone This is a stone that makes people stumble and a rock that makes them fall because they refuse to believe in the word. They stumble. Indeed, this is the end to which they were appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's own possession. You have become this people so that you may speak of the wonderful acts of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, Peter knows his audience well. They are up against it. They are being ridiculed. Maybe they're being cut off economically. Maybe they're being lambasted by negative remarks. Maybe they're being physically harmed. All because of the faith that they profess. And naturally, when you read this letter, you come to the conclusion that Peter is on to something or knows something about his audience. They're asking the question, is this worth it? What gives? talked about that a bit last week. This is the question they must be facing because they thought that by coming to Jesus and following him that they were embracing the good life and that they'd receive it right here, right now and wouldn't have to face anything else. And yet here they are, foreigners in a foreign land, facing persecution. And you know what happens when you face that level of turmoil? You want to get back. You want to put up a fight. You want to make sure that you repay insult for insult. Maybe you want to find a way to undercut their economics so that they get knocked down a peg. It is unfortunately a bit of human nature. See, I I said sportsification, but we don't even need to call it that because we've been doing that to each other for a very, very long time. And the early church were the recipients of these kinds of things again and again in its earliest iteration. And yet, what does Peter say right out of the gate? After that, therefore, that word that should clue us in, say, okay, I'm trekking with you, Peter. God is good because he sent Jesus and he sent the Spirit. Okay, I like that. I like that. Where are you going with this? And he says, therefore, get rid of all ill will and all deceit, pretense, envy, and slander. All the things you want to do to the people that are doing it to you, get rid of it. Stop it. 
Be nice. Even when they're not being nice to you. Show love even when they hate you. Show grace and mercy even when you have none. That's what he leads in with. That is his response to the problem. And then he adds something else. He says instead, and you know what instead means. <laughs> you probably know what therefore means, but instead means instead of doing the thing I just told you not to do, do this instead. And I want you to catch something. He doesn't jump right in and give us the antithetical statements to the things that he says not to do, does he? Instead, he uses an analogy. He says, like a newborn baby, desire the pure milk of the Word. And this is interesting because there are other parts in the New Testament that take this idea of, the, of, of keeping with milk and saying you need to graduate from milk and get to solid food. But here, Peter's doing a different analogy kind of thing. In this one, the milk is good. Why? Because he wants us to be in the desperate state of a newborn needing nourishment and longing for it and making that the root of our growth and our faith. The pure milk is the Word. And if we're nourished by it, we'll grow into salvation because we have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, He doesn't tell you exactly what to do instead of the things that you ought not to do, but instead tells you to lean in and yearn for the source that will equip you to be able to do good, to do all the things he says that are different from the things that he says not to do. And then he begins doing something that will become a common theme in the letter. He tells us to, to lean into this living stone, and he's referring to Jesus here. And he mentions the fact that this living stone that is good for us to come to was rejected by people, which is interesting because what's the plight of the Christians he's writing to? They are rejected by the people that are living around them, which means that if you are a follower of Jesus and you are rejected by the people around you, you're in good company because your Lord and Savior experienced the same rejection as you are. And what did Jesus do, by the way, when he was rejected? When he was arrested? When he was tried in a sham trial? When his closest followers abandoned him? Did he call down angels and fire from heaven and smite his enemies? Did he tell Peter, go ahead, pick up the sword and cut the other ear off? That's a story you should look at Peter cutting the ear off. Anyway, did he do that? No. He laid down his life. Not only for you and me. Not only for his followers. But the very people that rejected him. That arrested him. That tried him. That crucified him. Peter isn't giving us something new that Jesus didn't do. 
he is in effect saying, when you come to this cornerstone, this living stone that was chosen by God, his beloved son in whom he was well pleased, when we come to him, when we lean into his word, we have the answer for how to respond to our rejection, to our misery, to our persecution. And we do it with the same love that Jesus showed. But he also gives another reason to lean into the word, to embrace the pure milk of the word. Because it says that there are other people that reject the living stone, and that living stone becomes a cornerstone that causes stumbling. Not because grace and love aren't good, but because the word of God being so high and lofty, being so right and moral, is just too much for anyone to lean into. Because these people that reject God's Word, they want to keep going on living in this world where we other everybody else and have ill will toward and deceit toward and pretense and envy and slander. They want to carry on living against the Word. And so the way of Jesus becomes a stumbling block because it makes no sense in a world where we do all of those bad things to other people that we decided are on the other team. Well, it makes no sense to love and lay down life for them. They're the losers and we're the winners. And he concludes this section by Larian quotes from the Old Testament uh, that were statements made about the people of Israel that God chose and called out all the way back with Abraham. And instead, Peter uses these labels for the followers of Jesus. He says, but you... Oh, and by the way, he says, but you... So now he's, again, differentiating from the world that has rejected Jesus and is stumbling because of his word. But you is a way of saying, but you're going to be different. Why? Because you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's own possession. And I love this, by the way, because Peter's also doing something really wild. Because I don't know if you know this, But the Christian faith surpasses all the things that we chalk up that make us different. See, you can have a black or a white skin color and be a Christian. You can come from all different nations and parts of the world in different language and be a Christian. We have brothers and sisters all over the world that have all the differences that we can think of, but we share one thing. We all decided to be disciples of Jesus. And yet Peter takes this language originally for the Israelites, but not just that, originally for an ethnic people, one people group, and starts calling Christians. Did you catch that? He says, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy what? Nation. See, this is why I brought up this idea at the beginning of othering. 
because it is something that isn't modern. It's not just our problem. It's a problem that people have fallen into over and over again from the beginning because of sin, because of the hate and envy and jealousy that sin brings about. And yet we who are disciples of Jesus are called to something different. And not only something different, to be a different people altogether. And that's why I want us to understand that this morning, what Peter is calling us to do is that in a divisive world, in a divisive world, let the labor of Christ and the Holy Spirit's power Elevate you above the fray. In this divisive world, let the labor of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit elevate you and I above the fray. This is a different way of saying, let's stop sportifying everybody as if everybody plays for another team. Because here's the truth. The truth is, is that whoever you decide is worthy of your hate is loved by God. And by the way, as Paul says, you in your sin and I in my sin were once enemies of God. And yet, while we were still sinners, God sent His Son, Jesus, to be a ransom for us. In fact, Jesus Himself teaches in the Sermon on the Mount to love your enemies and to do good to those who mistreat you. For what good is it if you only love those who love you? Even sinners and tax collectors can do that. We live in a divisive world. We live in a world that will find whatever color of skin you have, whatever political party you are, whatever religious background you are, whatever country you come from, and find a reason to divide and make you part of the other team that is worthy of their hate and derision. But the gospel, it breaks all of that down. Let the labor of Christ The work of Christ on the cross and the empowerment of the Spirit who guides us to live with joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, forbearance, self-control. Let that elevate us above the fray. I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to be a prognosticator. I don't know what's going to happen this year. And anybody that tries to, they're going to be wrong in like two weeks. But I can tell you this. People will prove to be really good at this. This year. We are called to something better. To something greater. It gets so bad I was listening to a podcast the other day. People can't even have dinner with their family at a holiday without this happening. 
They don't even know how to talk to their friends without this happening. And they certainly can't have a dialogue on the internet without it happening. Just log in and find out. Heck, a sports writer in Cincinnati can't even say something good about Lamar Jackson without 50 comments about how dumb he is coming up from his own team. Which, by the way, is a great analogy. Because here's the real problem. See, there's all this good that Jesus brings, but I'm going to warn you. The moment you step into the light of Jesus and you start doing things his way, you will not only end up at odds with the other team, you'll end up at odds with your own, whichever one it is. And trust me, as long as they're still playing this game, they'll let you know about it. But here's the beauty. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and, a, and this is my favorite line, a people who are God's own possession. You don't belong to another team. Whatever teams you think you're on, you don't belong to them. Even if it's your favorite sports team's fandom, you don't really belong to that team. Even if it's a political party, you don't belong to that team. Even if it's a group of people with the same skin color, you don't belong to that team. You belong to a king and a kingdom that far surpasses the powers and principalities of this world. And that king will never leave you or forsake you. So no matter who you find yourself at odds with, when you live out the calling, know that you're part of a people who are God's own possession. He has called us to live above the fray. I want you to imagine what your interactions day-to-day might look like with your friends, with your family members, with the clerk across the counter when you're getting your coffee or they're bagging your groceries. If you choose the way of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, imagine what would happen if we stopped sportsifying life and started loving other people the way God loves you and me. Imagine. I could tell you this. The world that wants to divide all of us, they don't want that. But God wants unity and truth. He wants us together in common faith, in pursuit of Christ-likeness, to be his disciples. And as we said last week, sometimes when we try to be all these other things that the world is calling us to be, rather than just being who God has made us to be and called us to be, we get in a load of trouble. That's what gets us on other teams. Instead, embrace the labor of Christ and the Holy Spirit's power so he can elevate you above the fray. 
Stick together because you're God's possession. Each week, we take communion here because we remember that while we were on the other team because of our sin, God still loved us. That He gave His one and only Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Abundant life. Life to the full. And we take communion each week not only to remember that, but to remember the way that Jesus lived and the fact that it is the way that we are called to live to. So I invite you to take a moment and ponder what God has done for us and what He has called us to. And after we take that moment of reflection, we'll take communion together as one church family, as God's possession. cup and eat. This is his body which is given for us. Likewise, I invite you to take and drink from this cup. This is his blood which is poured out for us. Please pray with me. Dear Lord God, we thank you for getting us here safely this morning in the cold so that we can worship you in spirit and truth. We thank you for the love and the grace that you've bestowed on us and given us. And uh, God, we live in a world where uh, <clears throat> it feels like that runs in short supply. And so God, I pray that you will help us to be salt and light by living in obedience to you, by uh, just leaning into the power of the Spirit to uh, embrace your word and to live it out daily. And uh, let us be different. Let us be holy. Let us be set apart as you've called us to be. Whether we face highs or lows from that. Uh, because we know that uh, when we are light in this world, that others will come to know you and uh, be embraced in this family of faith. And we pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.